You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. Well, I've always been a big sci-fi fan. As a Trekkie and Star Wars kid, it never left me as an adult. But as a filmmaker, I've become quite discerning in my taste of what I spend time with to sit down and watch, especially when it comes to sci-fi. Moon is one of my favourite sci-fis because of its simplicity, much like 2001 compared to a lot of modern sci-fis. And don't get me wrong, Kubrick's film wasn't simple, but many of the scenes were executed with simplicity in mind for viewing. For example, like the scene between Dave Bowman and Hal in the pod scene where Hal reads his lips and knows that Bowman wants to take Hal down. Now that scene totally holds up today. And like the film itself, it's beautifully executed. But most of the film isn't overcomplicated to follow. So sci-fi shorts are not easy to make. In fact, the reason it's difficult to do that is because you are limited in every way. You're limited with money. You're limited with casting, locations, crew. Oh, and did I mention visual effects? So everything is squeezed through this intense magnifying glass and it's almost impossible to make a concept short that actually holds up. Well, a couple of days ago, I sat down and watched a high-concept short called Cognition. The brief synopsis reads, We journey through the symbolic landscape of the unconscious mind as we follow the story of an unbreakable bond between father and son, a bond that transcends space and time. Ravi Ajit Chopra is the director, and welcome to the film podcast. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. It's lovely to be here. Lovely. And thanks so much for having me and Simon on. It's an absolute pleasure. So the first question about how you got into this whole filmmaking business, I think it's probably clear based on your parents owning a video shop when you were a kid. Now, if there's ever a library of learning film craft, this has got to be a great resource. So tell me a little bit about how all of that influenced you as a kid growing up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my parents actually owned a video shop in the UK when I was six years old. And it was amazing. I remember seeing VHS boxes of um, cassette covers of 2001, actually, as per in your intro. I remember um, Deer Hunter, some Hong Kong film classics, Scanners, an old David Cronenberg film, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly by Sergio Leone. And there was literally, we had a selection of world cinema, Hollywood cinema, Bollywood cinema. My mother used to be on the ground floor and there was an upstairs area where we had a VHS TV set up. And whenever I was there, I was just watching films and really just, you know, so young. And I just knew from a very early age that I wanted to work in films and I didn't want to do anything else. The subconscious is really strange in this sort of area because you said six years of age I mean that's very impressionable and if you've got the idea of gee I'd love to be a filmmaker one day from six years of age having that intake of information it's huge I suppose I've never really thought about that until I was actually making cognition uh, just a lot of good childhood memories a lot of inspirational childhood memories with that video shop and just, I remember there was a, you know, my father told me to watch um, a couple of old martial arts films. One was called The One-Armed Swordsman, which was quite violent, but it was absolutely amazing. And I remember it to this day, and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. I remember seeing that 
And I also saw Evil Dead when I shouldn't have done. And that really did scare me. But that was one that I watched secretly myself. But seeing that film again now, which was Sam Raimi's um, film debut with his um, fellow film students, and to see what he actually achieved with that film is is pretty phenomenal. That it was made in a very low-budget style and the impact that that film makes, even now when you watch it, all the, the kind of low-budget filmmaking techniques actually helped to tell that story in a really intense, engaging way. And they did a phenomenal job with that. I mean, it's, it is a really, really scary film. As an adult, before you become a filmmaker, things that you watch pre-filmmaking days, then you watch it as a filmmaker, it's like watching two different films. And I'm sure that's the case with you, particularly since you had all these films to watch from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think when I watch a film now, I'd see it, I see it in different layers, basically, as I'm sure you, you do as well, as a fellow filmmaker. I really, really try to actually watch a film the first time just as a complete experience, as a movie experience. But if I truly love a film, I'll watch it many times after that. And I will literally study certain scenes that just blew me away or really hypnotized me during a moment of drama or elevation. You know, there was um, E.T. is one of my favorite films. I literally came across the making of E.T., and soon as I saw the, uh, the actual individual who was in the, the puppetry of the E.T. character, I just turned it off. Mm. I turned it off straight away and I didn't want to watch anything else of it because that film has such an impressionable place in my heart. And I didn't want the actual, the magic of what Spielberg had created with that film to be deconstructed in my mind. I just didn't want to see any deconstruction of that film whatsoever. So I literally just turned it off. And that's the first time I've actually done that. But there's certain films that I I absolutely love. Also at um, at BBC, where I worked for many years, I worked on 45 different film productions where I went and I would be responsible for producing and directing all the behind the scenes material, commercials, promos. You know, sometimes it's fascinating and for education to actually see the process in action. And then other times you just want to be, you want to be taken on a journey and on a ride and you don't want to be looking at the mechanics of the filmmaking process. Well, if you're doing behind the scenes in 40 plus feature films before you've become a film director, that is a very, very powerful way of learning because there's nothing, nothing beats being on a set and observing no matter what department you're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I genuinely feel very, very lucky to have gone on to so many sets with award-winning filmmakers and top talent. Yeah, so on Testament of Youth, there was a VFX supervisor, an Oscar winner called Tim Webber, who runs Frame Store in London. And he was there one day to oversee this huge green screen shoot that was taking place as they were going to, there was a scene being created in London where you had all these extras, the horses, where the war had come to an end and everyone was celebrating in the streets of London and there was only a certain amount of extras and there was a huge amount, there was well over a, a hundred, but they wanted to create a whole sea of extras, you know, um, as far as the eye could see. And Tim Weber was there one day and it was amazing to actually see him work with the director to capture all the different shots that are required and all the actual VFX plates. There was also Life on the Road with Ricky Gervais when the Office TV series 
that actual TV series was turned into a feature film called Life on the Road. And Ricky Gervais was actually directing and acting at the same time. I thought, wow, this guy is so talented. It's been amazing to see many different multi-talented artists who are able to actually exercise their creativity with different disciplines. And Ricky Gervais is all about capturing the drama and the spontaneity and the comedy in front of the camera. He's not really too fussed about the actual technicalities, what lenses are being used. He is someone who's deeply immersed in the spontaneity and the creativity of the drama. Well, let's go back to your film, Cognition. Now, you wrote, directed, produced and edited the film, so you're right across the footprint of the film. But going back to the seed of an idea, what was the driving force for you to make something like Cognition? Yeah, now the driving force for me was was that um, I had been on so many film sets in my BBC job on various BBC films productions, and I'd learned a great deal. I really wanted to try and do something that was going to really make me feel uncomfortable, that was really going to scare me. And I wanted to put all those uh, things that I've learned into action. Basically, in London, I was living opposite the Battersea Power Station, which is Europe's biggest brick building. It's a very famous cultural landmark in the UK. So the building inspired an original idea for me to do something based in this building because it looked like a, you know, a very dystopian, a derelict setting. And um, from there, I basically started to work out various ideas. But I wanted to do something that was more thought-provoking in the sci-fi genre, something that would work as a sci-fi drama instead of a sci-fi action film. And that's where I came up with the idea of a son confronting his past trauma to reconnect with the father that he loves. As well as that taking place in the movie, it was also about mind control. It was about child soldiers. It was about an organization called the Vega Empire Command, how they manipulate young children through mind control programming to turn them into agents. So you've got actors like Andrew Scott and Jeremy Irvine in your film. Something high concept like this, they're going to be lending their name to the project. But somebody like an Andrew Scott is going to want to know the ins and the outs of how, Ravi, you're going to achieve all of this. That first meeting that you had, presumably you have some pieces in play at that point, and I think you may have even had something shot. But you wouldn't have had everything locked in because talent will want to evaluate the project as much as they can, particularly through their agents. So how did that pitch go with that first meeting that you had with Andrew Scott? We put a lot of time into the script originally. I also developed a 35-page treatment document for the film, and we showcased it visually within this treatment document in terms of the world that we wanted to create, what it was going to look like, the visuals. This became the Bible for the actual film. And we had also shot at the Battersea Power Station, and we managed to do some filming there, so I had something visually to show as well. So I sent um, all these things to Andrew Scott's agent, through my amazing casting director. I think it's really key to get a good casting director on board. And the key is, is uh, once Andrew had re- read the script, he'd seen the treatment document, he could see that we had put a great deal of work into the project. I think for any actor, especially on Andrew Scott's level, he was already a BAFTA winner at the time by playing Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes. You know, the these level of actors want to know that you've actually created a vision and you've created a world that they can actually be part of. 
And if they do come in and they contribute and they take part in the film. So all of those things show confidence in terms of, you know, them coming on board a short film project, which uh, quite frankly, they don't necessarily need to do. And your film Cognition is over 20 minutes long. Uh, You've made it, I'm guessing, you want to make it into a feature or into a series. You've certainly, from a directing point of view, if nothing else, you have this calling card of what you can do as a director. So what has happened since this film has been released? Have you had any uptick in terms of people saying we really liked what you did with cognition what's kind of happened since you've made the film you know since we've made the film it's been received really well we got a a great deal of coverage um, of the film um, on bbc news we had leading uk film critic mark amode give us a really nice review on the film as well we qualified for the Oscars last year for Best Live Action Short. And since then, we've won 82 awards so far, short film awards on the international film circuit. Yeah, we are developing the film into a feature film. We're working on the script now, but we have had some really exciting um, interest and we're working on everything right now to move it to the next stage. Well, that sounds pretty uh, exciting for you. Most shorts never have the opportunity to have a cinema release, but I understand that you had four weeks release with Archlight Cinemas in London. So tell me a little bit about that and what that meant to you as a filmmaker. Yeah, it was a great experience, actually, because, um, I mean, as filmmakers, we all want to get our film into the actual cinema. We actually worked on the film with Technicolor. They worked with us on the film for about a year. We had 350 visual effects shots. The great thing about Technicolor was they literally, they worked with us in a great deal of detail. And the sound design was led by Emmy Award winner Stuart McCowan, who recently just finished working on Jurassic World Dominion. And we ended up doing a Dolby Atmos mix at Abbey Road Studios. They let us come in. It was, uh, we were waiting to do that in the middle of COVID. As soon as the restrictions were lifted, we managed to get a bit of time at Abbey Road Studios to do a finally, a, you know, a final Dolby Atmos mix, which was super, super exciting. And um, when we got it to Archlight Cinema, they said, yeah, we'll put the film on. And the thing is, the Archlight Cinema is also in the same location as where we shot the film at the Battersea Power Station. So it was amazing because people could come and see the film and they could see the actual location of where it was filmed as well. So it was super exciting. And, and you know, we had many sold out screenings And Ravi, let's bring in your DP, Simon Rowling. Hi, Simon. Welcome into the film podcast. Hi, how's it going? Not too bad. Great to have you on. Perhaps we can start off with you telling me a little bit how you both, you and Ravi, mapped out this high-concept film working together because, man, if there is ever a film where a DP and a director need to work very closely, this film would have to be it, right? Yeah, I, th- I think Ravi put in a lot of a lot of time into into his research and into his um, inspiration for this short. I, I didn't have to do that much more because he did so many. I think he spent you know a couple of years looking into the backstory of the characters and all these various films that he wanted to reference and and nod to. But yeah, we just discussed uh, various themes, thematic themes, and and just and what you know the, the the style of the lighting and the mood and the atmosphere that we wanted to create. You know, it was a lot of conversations and and references to certain films, such as Blade Runner. So yeah, there's a lot of conversations. <laughs> 
But how scary was it for you as the DP? Because, you know, it's one thing for a director to say, look, you know, I've got this high concept uh, sci-fi and I'd like to ca- you to come in as the DP, but, you know, it's another thing to really sort of execute that all the way through the timeline. Yeah. I mean, you know, this was a short, it wasn't too too daunting. It, yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was just quite, as you can imagine, it's just quite a lot to shoot in one day or at one location. We we had Steadicam, we had Dolly, we had a jib, and I think at times it was handheld as well. So, you know, we, we, were, we were trying to utilise as much as we could, as quickly as we could. Um, and, in, and in terms of lighting, for me, that means light the set and then the faces when you need to. And that's always, I think, a lot of DP's approaches, you know, to, to lighting sets. You start with the, the, with the set itself, and then when you go in for close-ups or or whoever you're going to see, wherever they are, um, that's when you light the actors. But with these sets, you know, you could go to town with actually trying to put in more practicals, um, and that would help us. Okay, let's have a look at the visual effects. Obviously, this plays a very big part in the film. 350 visual effects shots. That's a hell of a lot, given that you're presumably on this very tight budget, as you say, restricted for time. How did you and Ravi work together to know where all of those pieces were going and landing? For me, well, we had a visual effects supervisor on set, so he could suggest what we did and what we didn't do. We had a, a big green screen day with sand, the five tons of sand brought into the set. So that was quite a key visual effects sort of day because that was the sort of desert landscape um, on the home planet. That was probably the hardest sort of, sort of to imagine, you know, what you're actually filming. That was the hardest one because of, the, you know, the set extensions that would happen in post. But a lot of the visual effects were actually just adding things in, into the locations or even taking things away from the locations. Um, so that was all really out of our hands. You know, it was more kind of down the post timeline. Those things happened. The, the biggest sort of on-set visual effects stuff was the green screen day, really, with the sound and all that stuff. And what about the camera setup? For our geeks listening to the podcast, they'll be interested to know what the camera was, what the lenses were, etc. You've already mentioned that you were using a steady cam, a jib, a dolly, etc. So talk to that a little bit in terms of the camera setup. Yeah, so um, our, our camera, a camera was um, an Alexa XT, I believe. Um, and then we had Cook Anamorphics for all the main sequences. Um, but for the flashbacks, we actually used um, Super Speed Mark IIs. So the idea behind that was Cook Cook Anamorphics to give the, the very sort of sci-fi feel, but with a gentle fall off um, from the stuff skin tones and texture um, and then for the flashbacks we wanted to kind of make it feel quite different so we went with spherical um, and then obviously just added the black bars and but you're shooting almost wide open with the spherical lenses and because they're vintage you know you get a lot of blurring on the edges a bit like the anamorphics but you just get it's you know it's just a different look so um, we, we, we try to try to make the, the flashbacks feel quite different really. Yeah, and I think that that was definitely achieved for sure. And the team that you used around the camera, how how big was your team there, Simon? Oh, um, I think we had we did have B camera on um, a couple of the days, but you know we just had the normal sort of team. We had you know a grip, a first AC, second AC, 
Yeah, I think I think we had a B camera on a couple of the days um, just because there was so much to do. But, you know, just the normal sort of team. And the Battersea Power Station in London, our American listeners in particular won't know that by name, but they would have seen the power station in other films. Explain to us how you were able to shoot there and the significance of using that. Oh, yeah, that was really, really exciting, actually. You know, we, I mean, it was mainly um, visual effects plates that we were getting when we were inside the actual power station. Um, so that was visual effects plates for the for the spaceship, really, for, you know, for a post. So that was more plates and things like that. And then some drone shots going down in, into the chimneys and around everywhere. We all, you know, we also shot some establishers outside the building as well. So, you know, the camera pushing in towards the building. And there's no doubt that this is a pitch concept film, which we've talked to Ravi earlier. It's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. It's a, a let's see how far we can push the production value. And from the initial conversations that you had with Ravi, you couldn't have predicted the final landing position of this film. There's no way to predict that. So talk me through about the arc of the journey and what some of the highlights were for you that really stood out on reflection of looking back from where you started talking about the construction of the film to the final result it was over a few years to be honest because we did the second unit stuff um i think a year ahead of the power station being um redeveloped so i I was actually brought in to do some second unit work and I, i really knew about the project and obviously ravi had told me all about it and i was fully on board um, but we had to do the second unit work first, and then a year later, when further things progressed and we got hold of the uh, actors' availability, um, Andrew Scott and Jeremy Irvine, um, you know, we were then able to plan out the dates and times and stuff when we could actually shoot. And then it was, uh, you know, I think another year or so that we're of post, um, you know, because obviously there's 300 or so visual effects shots. So there was a lot to do, you know, in pre-production, during shooting, and in post. But I think. I just did what I could during the, you know, the, the eight days. And then it was really up to Ravi to kind of oversee the whole, the whole thing. Cause you know, he, he produced, you know, wrote it and directed it and produced it and visual effects supervised it in post really, you know, over that whole period because there was a lot of shots in post that he, he wanted to work on. So, uh, you know, he's, he's the, the talent behind it all, really. I'm, I was just uh, lucky enough to be there on the eight days. <laughs> now, I mentioned to Ravi that this is a calling card for him, but there's no doubt this is a calling card for you too as the cinematographer. So how has this concept sci-fi helped you with projects? So when the short and Ravi's story was featured on BBC News, on uh, BBC One, that's when I actually had a call um, saying, call me in the morning, I've got a proposition for you. So, and then so the next day I, I called this producer and he said, oh, we're doing this feature film in a few weeks' time. Uh, we're still looking for a DOP. Are you available? I said yes. Um, and this was just after all the lockdowns and everything else. And I was just like, oh, well, this is perfect you know and i went for an interview and i and i got the job based off him seeing it on the news so that was wow. the weirdest sort of way of getting a job ever i think well you know it's not that weird really because this is what the film industry is all about it's about having something for somebody to watch suddenly you've got a job out of it yeah yeah no it was quite exciting it was a quite a small sort of production company but they'd actually bought the rights to the jeepers creepers franchise 
And so that was um, what the film was that we were doing. It was the new Jeepers Creepers Reborn. So it was actually all all shot in the UK, mainly in a in a studio with a big set build, and then filming outside of it, all to kind of double as sort of the Bayou in America and Louisiana and places. So yeah, it was it was quite an exciting challenge because there's a lot of visual effects on that as well. Oh, that's a that's a really brilliant story. Thank you for sharing that with us, Simon. And Jeepers Creepers, when does that come out? When's that released? Well, we wrapped actually this time last year, so I'm hoping uh, any any day now. <laughs> but I, with that film as well, there was a lot of visual effects, you know, more so than there was in the original um, because it was you know more practical back then when when the original came out. I think in the late '90s. So yeah, I'm hoping in the next few months, to be honest. Okay, well, you know, all the very best of luck for that. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about how this shoot of cognition went with Ravi and all the best uh, for the future. Thank you very much. So people listening to the podcast, Ravi, where can they see your film right now? Yeah, they can see our film on Amazon Prime Video or on iTunes. It's also available to view on YouTube. If you go to cognitionsci-fi.com, you can actually see where it's available in your country. Everything is listed there on the website. And there's also some really nice cool behind-the-scenes bits. So, Ravi, what was the size of the crew and how many days did it take you to shoot? Yeah, no, we were shooting for over two weeks, but it was over. It was a bit of a fragmented shoot because we filmed at different stages. It was about two to two and a half weeks, actually, overall. In terms of crew, we had about 50 crew on set. We definitely had about over 200 people who worked on the film, you know, overall. And one of the striking things in your film is the music score, the orchestral score. Tell me a little bit about that because... Apparently, that's a 55-piece BBC concert orchestra. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Well, our composer, Samuel Carl Bowen, he's super talented. Anyway, I approached him about the film. I pitched it to him. And he says, yeah, okay, let's do it. And he actually did a couple of themes before we shot anything. So we actually had a couple of themes worked out well in advance so the actors could listen to those themes before they actually did their performances. And they really, really appreciated that. I basically said to him, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually get a full orchestra to record the score for our movie? And he said, well, that would be a dream come true if we do that. I found out who the person was at BBC who's in charge of the BBC Concert Orchestra. And they came on board and they covered the cost to do the orchestral recording, which was phenomenal. It was uh, was an amazing experience. Well, thank you so much for talking about your film Cognition. Certainly done well with some of the awards that you've picked up. You look as if you're going to potentially turn this into a feature. Thanks so much for coming on to the film podcast and talking about it. Thank you so much for letting us come on the show. It's really, really appreciated. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.